rattles around. If you ever can't hear me, raise your hand. Nothing more frustrating than coming to church and not being able to hear. And my glasses dislodged this. Last week, I tried without my glasses to do better. Couldn't see the Bible. The words were like, the men like trees walking. So Jesus didn't do the miracle of my eyes. I brought my glasses this week and the light. So, but if you, if this shifts and you can't hear me, please let me know because I don't want to do all of this in, in vain. We're going to tie the triumphal entry to one of the letters to the churches that we're studying in Revelation. And we're going to skip forward to the church at Thyatira because it ties so well. The theme is when the leaders of God's people go bad. You see, that's what Jesus faced when he came into Jerusalem. The leaders had gone bad. They had determined long before to kill him. They were insulted at Jesus' work and miracle. They had not asked for him. He was displacing them. He was rebuking them uh, for their self-righteousness so many times. And they had determined that after he raised Lazarus from the dead, that they had to stop him. They were planning to kill him. And Jesus knew that. And when he turned and told his disciples, let's go to Jerusalem, they said, they want to kill you there. And he said, that's why I'm going. I'm going and I'll be handed over to the chief priests and scribes and Pharisees. And I'll be crucified and on the third day I will rise. Jesus had begun telling his disciples that's why he was going to Jerusalem. And in doing that, Okay. Now, can you hear me? I don't know what that was about. Jesus, um, uh, where was I? This is not a senior moment because I've done this all my ministry, but lots of times the distractions were my own kids. When uh, Jesus told the disciples he was coming to Jerusalem to, to lay down his life, and when he was coming in and he was being praised, he knew that there's something false in this praise. Why were the crowds praising Jesus? One, because it was his due. And from the mouths of children, God is ordained to praise. But how could they turn on Jesus? The leaders had gone bad, and there were faithful disciples who would follow him anywhere. But I think there was a whole crowd in the middle who believed Jesus because he had seen his miracles. They had accepted that he was the Messiah. They thought if someone can walk on water, if someone can raise the dead, if someone can heal the sick, the Romans are no problem for, for him. And so when he was coming to Jerusalem, they had an agenda that they wanted Jesus to do for them. And they thought it was the right agenda. How many of us approach God, even as Christians, in the name of Jesus, understanding the gospel. But we see our walk with Christ more as a test of God. Is he true to his promises by doing what I want him to do? Or are we really followers of Jesus, seeing what it, it, what it is that God wants to do? That's the big difference. I've, I've had the privilege of leading a man to Christ who I've met with over, you know, every month or so, over a long period of time, still do. 
and he struggles with a, a number of different uh, illnesses and, and issues in himself and in his family. And he said something profound at one point. He said, I realize that prayer is less about telling God what I want him to do than it is asking God to help me to respond the way he wants me to be in this circumstance. That is true. Now, we can lay our requests before God. We can plead, please, 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 as Jesus did in the Garden of Gethsemane, sweating as though great drops of blood were falling to the ground. If there's any other way, let this cup pass from me. But he always prayed, but your will, not mine, be done. And in those hours of prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus in his prayer prepared himself for the cross. The final stage of his prayer was simply, Father, glorify thy name. See, the crowd hadn't gotten to that point. They thought Jesus was coming to Jerusalem as Messiah would free them from Rome and give them earthly blessings. But he came for a much deeper, better, higher agenda. That was to go to the cross, that all who put their faith and trust in him would be forgiven their sins, would be paid for by his sacrifice on the cross, and he would open the doors of heaven to them. That's why he came into the world. God sent his only begotten son into the world that whoever believes in him would not perish, but have everlasting life. What difference would it make if Jesus had freed uh, the Israelites from Rome today, only for them later to die and, and be eternally separated from God? Let that flavor your prayers when you think, what is it you really want? Ah, you can pray for that healing. You can pray for that relationship to be restored. You can pray for that job and that provision. Jesus said all these things in the Lord's Prayer. Give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Lead us not into temptation, the time of testing, but deliver us from evil. We walk with Christ, and he's our ever-present help in time of trouble. But his big agenda is to fit us for heaven. That's his big agenda. And we should couch it all and say, but God, you know everything you know best. This is the prayer of faith. I trust you. Your will be done, not mine. That's what was going on in this remarkable week. The people praised Jesus at first and then turned on him and he was crucified. So I think we have to put a question mark after the triumphal entry. There's some irony there. It was triumphant because he was worthy to be praised. But they weren't praising him with a genuine heart to follow him to the cross and discover what was real. But they were being prepared. I believe this is why after Pentecost, when the people saw the signs and wonders of the apostles, they asked, what must we do to be saved? See, Peter said, this Jesus whom you crucified is both Lord and Christ. And they were struck to the heart. They realized what they had done. And Jesus said, and, and Peter said, repent and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Be baptized and you'll receive the Holy Spirit. This promise is for you and for your children. The children weren't excluded uh, from this. So that's the big picture of what's going on. I would like to focus now on the question, what do we do when the leaders of God's people go bad? I want to read another gospel's uh, rendering of Jesus' triumphal entry and, and see one more thing that it brings out. This is in Luke chapter 19, 
verses 28 and following. After Jesus had said this, he went on ahead going up to Jerusalem. As he approached Bethphage and Bethany at the hill called the Mount of Olives, he sent two of his disciples saying, go to the village ahead of you, and as you enter it, you'll find a coat uh, tied there, which no one else has ever ridden, and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? Tell him, the Lord needs it. Those who were sent ahead and found it just, those who were sent ahead went and found it just as he had told them. As they were untying the colt, its owners asked them, why are you untying it? They replied, the Lord needs it. They brought it to Jesus, threw their cloaks on the colt, and put Jesus on it. As he went along, people spread their cloaks on the road. Doesn't mention the branches here. It should be cloak Sunday. When he came near the place where the road goes down to the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of disciples began joyfully to praise God in loud voices for all the miracles they had seen. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to Jesus, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. I tell you, he replied, if they keep quiet, the stones will cry out. We didn't turn to the church in Pergamum, but it would have been appropriate too for the end of the letter to the church of Pergamum. He said, I give you white stones with new names written on it. He makes us into living stones, building his kingdom, his temple, and he indwells us. Even the stones will cry out. We are stones. We had stony hearts, and now we're crying out in praise to God because he's made us alive by his spirit and by his redemption. Now, at this point, with all this celebration, and Jesus rebuked the Pharisees for rebuking him, what do you think uh, he would be thinking and feeling as he entered into Jerusalem. Dread? I, I don't think so, although there's an appropriate place for Jesus in his humanity to dread the cross. He wasn't masochistic or sadistic, or he didn't delight in the pain. It was an agony for him. He suffered the wrath of God in our place. Was it trifle? I'm going to get you. It wasn't that either. When you looked at the sins of Jerusalem, let's see what this next verse says. As he approached Jerusalem and saw the city, he wept over it and said, If you, even you, had only known on this day what would bring you peace, but now it is hidden from your eyes. When the leaders of the church go bad, how do we respond? We have the example of Jesus here. He's weeping over those who would reject him. It breaks his heart. There's a mystery there how the sovereign God who can give a new heart to anyone yet grieves over the sinfulness of those who, who reject him. But I think he shows us this so that we know how we should respond. Instead of self-righteous indignation and anger and et cetera, et cetera, it, it breaks our hearts when leaders of God's people reject Christ. And they do. Now, I don't think that this letter that we're going to read to the church of Thyatira is so much written to uh, our denomination, the PCA. I think the first letter we looked at uh, last week about being uh, doctrinaire, having the right doctrine, but forsaking the love we had at first, love for God, uh, love for one another. Uh, that's probably more indicting to us 
We haven't deserted the doctrine, but suppose this was a letter to the church in America. The biggest churches are not the churches that preach the gospel. It's called the health and wealth gospel. It's the very thing that I was talking about. The crowds thought Jesus was coming to Jerusalem to do what they wanted him to do, to free them from Rome and to make their life better here. It's that kind of gospel that's most popular. But when the tough time comes, you know, then it's not real faith. And people turn on Jesus and they think, I thought you cared. I thought you promised. You must not be there if you didn't do what I wanted you to do. The largest churches are the most popular. They've forsaken the gospel. We haven't quite gotten to the point of the church in Thyatira because the church in Thyatira just wholesale embraced. It was dominant in the church that uh, they embraced the idol worship. It's called the teaching of Jezebel in this letter. Let's turn now to Revelation uh, chapter 2, beginning in verse 18. I put in your bulletin, by the way, something just for you to hang on to. We'll develop it and explain it more. It's in the back of the bulletin. You'll see uh, on page six. It's an overview of the letters to the seven churches. And you can see how we've jumped forward a bit. And uh, the form of the letter, there's a basic form in each of these letters that you'll see on the right side. I'm not going to develop and explain that because we've already had the th- special things with children's sermons. That'll, that'll be coming I do want to put the letter to the church in Thyatira in its context, though. After the letter to the church in Ephesus, the doctrinaire church, the church in Smyrna is persecuted and about to be persecuted worse. The basic message is don't be afraid of what you're about to suffer. In Pergamum, heresy is tolerated. And the exhortation there, the command there is repent of that and, and get rid of those who are teaching the idol worship. But it seems that the leaders of the church are still uh, healthy in their faith. They're just tolerating uh, the teaching of the the Nicolaitans in their church, embracing the fertility religions. And they're not uh, keeping things um, straight in their teaching. They're tolerating it. In this case, the heresy is dominant. You'll see why I believe that's the case. The word tolerated is in there, but I don't think it's the leaders tolerated because the exhortation to those who are faithful is not straighten it out. You can't do anything about it. I'm not going to burden you anymore. Just hold on to what you have. And this thing gives me fits. My collar pulls on it. I'm going to use a pulpit mic next time. We'll set it up next time with the pulpit side. Okay, there you go. Um, the, um, in the third church of Thyatira, the, those who are faithful are just told to hold on. I think we can apply that if we saw this letter as the letter to the church in America. We can't go and fix all the big churches that are preaching all the, the wrong things. And you know, we can be all alarmed and concerned and get on the blog. We're not fixing those things. It's don't be burdened by that. Just be faithful yourselves. I think that's the message here. To the angel of the church in Thyatira write, these are the words of the Son of God, whose eyes are like blazing fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. 
I know your deeds, your love and faith, your service and perseverance, and that you are now doing more than you did at first. Nevertheless, now let's stop right here. The commentators divide about this first paragraph. Now, some think that in this letter, uh, Jesus is saying, I know that this is your reputation. I know, you know that you, you think you're doing uh, so well, but he's kind of being sarcastic about it. I know your love and faithfulness when actually they're embracing the Baal worship. I don't go that route. There's another place where uh, in, in one of the letters it says, you have a reputation for being alive in the letter to the church in Sardis. He could have said that here. He's being straightforward, commending those who are faithful. And he goes to those who are faithful first. I just think that's remarkable about Jesus. There was a time before the PCA started that, and my father was in ministry in the Southern Presbyterian Church. He knew he was in a minority. They couldn't control the things that were coming out of the General Assembly of the Southern Presbyterian Church. When the PCA opened up, many churches that had felt trapped before moved into the PCA and were able to be faithful with a governing body that supported the gospel and commitment to Christ and to his word. But they were you know, trapped before. My father told us after we had grown up why he, why he managed his concerns the way he did, because he was not uh, secretive about his concerns about the denomination that he was ministering in, but he celebrated three, four, five times as much the things he saw that God was doing that was right and faithful and committed. He said later, he said, it's because I wanted my children to grow up and love the church, not be cynical about it. Hear that one big time. Because if you're more concerned about the problems that you see and even perfecting a good church, and you, that's what you talk about and your children pick it up, are they going to become cynical about the church? We are not going to be perfect in this world, individually or as a church. And if we cannot learn to love things that are imperfect, we won't be able to love anybody or anything, and nobody will be able to love you if you have that same standard. My father wants to grow up and love the church because Christ was head of it. He could take care of the things that were going haywire. We just needed to focus on being faithful. So Jesus commends this church, even though the the uh, leaders have gone bad, and this group couldn't do anything about it. That's where he goes first. I know your deeds, your love and faith. That's above the Ephesians church. They forsaken the love they had at first. Your service and perseverance, and that you're now doing more than you did at first. Nevertheless, and he's addressing the church at large, I have this against you. You tolerate that woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess by her teaching. She misleads my servants into sexual immorality and the eating of food sacrificed to idols. Now, right there, this isn't a woman in the church named Jezebel. You recognize Jezebel from the Old Testament? Jezebel was Ahab's wife. Ahab in, in uh, 1 Kings, I think it's chapter 16, is introduced to us. And it says, Ahab did more evil than any before him. Because, and one of the reasons is he married Jezebel, whose father was named Ethbaal. It's like saying, I'm, I'm, my, wife, my wife is uh, Mary's son of Satan. 
it stood out to them. It incorporated Baal worship. My wife's name is not Mary, son of Satan. She's here. But Ahab should have known from the start what he was doing, and he did. He was more evil than the rest. And Jezebel came in, set up Baal worship. Baal worship was uh, fertility worship. It was temple prostitution, and it was child sacrifice. Mm. Ahab and Jezebel rebuilt Jericho at the cost of two of their children's lives. Child sacrifice was practiced in Baal to consecrate the walls. They did that. Wow. So when the church at Thyatira is told, you tolerate the teaching of the woman Jezebel, it's not just a, a broad metaphor. There was temple, there was a fertility worship in their town. This is the same kind of worship as the Baal worship before, and they're incorporating it into the church. In fact, this was dominant in the church. By her teaching, she misleads my servants into sexual immorality and the eating of food sacrificed to idols. I've given her time to repent of her immorality, but she is unwilling. So I will cast her on the bed of suffering, and I will make those who commit adultery with her suffer intensely unless they repent of her ways. If you know the story of Jezebel, after Ahab was killed, uh, one of the next kings uh, went to where Jezebel uh, lived, and she uh, came out to the top of the temple. The, the king said, whoever is with me, come forward. And they, cast, they came forward and cast Jezebel out of that temple, and she died. She was cast down. This is alluding to how God will cast down those who bring this kind of worship into supposed Christian worship. But it's really Baal worship, fertility god worship, Greek temple goddess worship. But they're faithful ones in the church too. But this is the leadership. I will strike her children dead. Then all the churches will know that I am he who searches hearts and minds and I will repay each of you according to your deeds. To our ears, this just sounds like, oh, God's got to be a bad God to say, I'll strike your children dead. There's poetic justice in this. They were sacrificing their children in their, in their worship. There is kind of an indirect or sideways application, I think, in our culture as people have turned away from, from God and have adopted, I want to do whatever I want to do, and I can cover the consequences of it by abortion. That is an affliction in our culture. We can't seem to stop it. We can't seem to, to gain the political uh, right uh, and authority to declare what it is. It is the wrong treatment of other human beings that are regarded as non-persons. It's so parallel to slavery in 1860. And the, the judgment on it, at least in part, is the consequence to the one who chooses to do it is the death of her own child. Now, some of you may have been through this. If you've been through this before, this is where the grace of Christ comes. This is where we're different from being woke. Because if you're woke about a sin, you're saying, I hate you because of what you've done. You're a terrible person. You don't belong here. We will cancel you. The Christian says we are all sinners, every one of us. 
Let me share with you, if this is your particular sin, where I have found grace and forgiveness and healing and wholeness. There's a lifting up, not a self-righteous condemnation. If you've been through this before, I hope when you come to church, when you hear a message like this, and you realize more the, the depth of the sin, you're thinking, oh, that's, that's what it was. And the Holy Spirit's working that in you. Then just turn to Christ on the cross and say, oh, the depth of his love for me. That he would take on himself God's wrath on my sin. See, that's what every Christian needs to do. And if we don't do that, we're not really Christians. We're self-righteous Pharisees. So that's a part of this message. I think it's an application, but the gospel is there. The gospel is there. Then all the churches will know that I am he who searches the hearts and minds. And I will pay each of you according to your deeds. Now I say to the rest of you in Thyatira, to you who do not hold to her teaching and have not learned Satan's so-called deep secrets. Here I'll stop. I think a lot of the um, cult religions had rites of sacrifice that were secret religions. You were initiated by doing something often that involved blood, often that involved sacrifice. You weren't to tell anybody, and that way you were coming uh, in, into the know of something that was very spiritually powerful, Satan's deep secrets, so-called deep secrets. God is saying that is shallow deception. Turn to the true and living one. The truth is wide open that I love you and I sent my son to pay the penalty of sin. And I call you, I call you to find salvation in him. That's what God's saying. And it's no secret. We're to take it to the whole world. Anyway, it says, now I, now I say to the rest of you in Thyatira, then the NIV does something strange that the ESV doesn't do. Score another one for the ESV. The NIV puts this in parentheses. I will not impose any other burden on you in parentheses. The ESV doesn't do that, does it? Is it, is it? That's one of the main things he's saying. When we are out of, out of control, out of, not, not out of control over ourselves, out of control of the leaders, when the leaders of God's people have gone bad, when we can't fix the church in America, and if you try to fix it by having a human council that will impose its will on everybody else, that human council will go bad too. The Catholic Church tried to do that, and it led to the Middle Ages when they turned away from the, from the gospel itself. We can't fix everything. God says, I won't lay any bigger burden on you. It's not your job to fix it. Romans 12, don't take revenge. Leave room for God's wrath. He's the one that will fix it, not us. Only hold on to what you have until I come. What does that mean? We just dig in a, a little fortress and we hold on to what we have and we stop trying to take the gospel to the world? Not at all. I'm going to close with a you know, passage from uh, Romans 12 that tells us how we hold on to what we have. It is an active holding on. In Romans 12, beginning in verse 9, love must be sincere Hate what is evil, cling to what is good, be devoted to one another in brotherly love, honor one another above yourselves, never be lacking in zeal, holding on to what you have is not just hunkering down, 
Never be lacking in zeal, but keep your spiritual fervor serving the Lord. Be joyful in hope, patient in affliction, faithful in prayer. Those are all things that we do. But then notice the next verse. Share with God's people who are in need. Practice hospitality. Open your homes. Reach out to, to one another. Jesus said the world will know you're my disciples by your love for one another, and that love overflows to those as we carry the gospel to the world. Romans 12 goes on to talk about loving our enemies. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Mourn with those who mourn. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be proud, but be willing to be associated with people of low position. Do not be conceited. These are all things we can do even when our leaders have gone bad. Even the church is, at large has gone, has deserted the gospel. This is holding on, and then he comes back to how we treat those that have hurt us. Do not repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everybody. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Do not take revenge, my friends, but leave room for God's wrath, for it is written, it is mine to avenge. I will repay, says the Lord. On the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head. Now, there's an attitude thing here. Don't think, ha, I'm going to get him. I'm going to heap burning coals on his head. That's not really doing good. That's, that's not the point. I think you can get the point if, just by thinking about it. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. That's holding on. I'm grateful to be in a denomination where I'm not, you know, there are, we're not a perfect church. There are always things to be concerned about, the things to, to address, uh, but don't get on the blogs that are just castigating. I got to fix everything because if perfect means everything I believe or everything you believe, we'll just be at each other's throats. Instead, praise God that we have good leadership that holds to Christ, holds to his word, holds to the gospel. We work together to discuss in love. But when we look at the church at large, say, Jesus will take care of that. As we uh, end the letter in, in Revelation, Jesus is saying, I will come. I will come. Got to turn back to it here. The beginning of the letter, these are the words of the Son of God, whose eyes are like blazing fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. This is the only time in these letters that Jesus is called the Son of God. And he is, um, he is obviously everywhere, but particularly this church when the leaders like in Jerusalem are against him. I'm the son of God. And I know everything. My eyes are like blazing fire. You can't hide from him. His feet are like burnished bronze, not feet of clay. He's strong and stable. And he says uh, in verse 23, then all the churches will know that I am he who searches the hearts and minds, and I will repay each of you according to your deeds. Let him be the judge, and let us carry the gospel of his grace and love. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, give us the ability to return good and not be overcome by evil. Even when it creeps into the church, let us raise our children to love your church Hate what is evil, be able to recognize those who are not committed to, to Christ and to his word, but 
to love the church in spite of its counterfeits, in spite of its heresies, in spite of its failures, because there's a true core of those that you have redeemed and shown your grace to. And you call us to show the kind of grace to others that you have shown to us. Let us trust you with it. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.